John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, this is Steve. As most of you know, the 10-year rule has been a part of the cinephiles since the very beginning. The purpose of the rule is to make sure that we're talking about films that have truly stood the test of time. However, the rule also means that on January 1st of each year, an entirely new set of movies is suddenly available for us to explore. Now, for the last three years, we've left the choice of what we should do first up to you, and... The fact is, it hasn't even been close. Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastard won in a landslide in 2009, and Christopher Nolan's Inception dominated the voting in 2010. But things were very different when we asked you to pick a movie from 2011. None of the movies received more than 20% of the vote, and the race was neck and neck between two films. Now, for a while, it looked like the Raid Redemption had it locked. But in the last minute, an underdog came from behind to win the day by a single vote, which is strangely appropriate for a movie about an underdog team with a bunch of unlikely stars finding a way to beat one of the most unbeatable records in the history of baseball. Moneyball, directed by Bennett Miller and starring Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, is a unique, insightful, and even challenging film. Based on the book by Michael Lewis, it charts the A's general manager, Billy Bean, in his quest to build a team that can beat the all-powerful Yankees at a third of the price. The result is not only a great movie, but the transformation of baseball and sports in general. Now, this is a great film, so if you haven't seen it, you need to round the bases to cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream Moneyball, along with every other film we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on Patreon, right now you could be listening to us discuss the great Charles Grodin, who passed away this week. Oh, and one more thing. It's now possible to support the show directly through Anchor. This is literally the easiest way you can help keep the cinephiles going. All you have to do is check out the link at the bottom of the show notes in every episode, and you are only a couple of clicks away from becoming part of the cinephiles family. So that's a tribute to Charles Grodin right now on Patreon and our very first film from 2011, Moneyball, this Friday on The Cinephiles. The problem we're trying to solve 
is that there are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap, and then there's us. It's an unfair game. If we try to play like the Yankees in here, we will lose to the Yankees out there. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris, and I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host over there on The Outlaw Nation and uh, avid sports fan, host a sports show on The Outlaw Nation. And this is one of those rare weeks where Steve and I get to explore a sports movie, so I am even more excited to be co-hosting the show today with Steve. Well, I'm certainly glad of that. And, I, you know, it's funny because we actually did a couple of sports movies uh, this year or last mm. year, last including year, yeah. one that I think relates to this movie. And that, of course, is Major League. There's yeah, a yeah. real Major League Moneyball connection, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, and, of course, that's the film we're doing, Moneyball. But the reason we're doing it is this is the first film from 2011, the first film allowed by our 10-year rule to be mm-hmm. done on the cinephiles. And it was chosen by all of you listeners. Yeah. Um, and, and, we, you know, we put out our listener survey uh, every year. And this one, well, the ones in the past have been blowouts. Yeah. Like uh, this one was not. And here are some of the other films that kind of came close. Captain America, the first Avenger was close. Tree of Life was close. Mm. But the one that was neck and neck and only missed by one vote. Wow. Is the Raid Redemption. <laughs> Which I imagine by default, we will at some point uh, talk about the Raid Redemption. That's probably true. But you yeah. chose a money ball. And this is a, a film. Well, let me ask you first, John, how did yeah. you first come to this film? I remember going to see it in the theater. I don't remember if it was with Shannon or with our crew of people. I can't imagine it was a wide berth of people because baseball isn't really the in the purview of a lot of our uh, fellow uh, theater friend or uh, movie friends. So I think it was just a few people that went to go see it. And I just remember absolutely loving it because it was such a different type of sports movie. And, you know, Steve, before we started doing the podcast a few days ago, when we considered this on our live show for Transformers, if you guys haven't watched that or listened to that, please go back and do that. Um, we were talking about Moneyball and you said you weren't sure if it was a sports movie. And I will say after having watched it again for the podcast, I'm even more sure that it is a sports movie and could be a fun conversation we have throughout the show. But I remember thinking how much it was such an unusual thing, almost like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is an unusual romantic comedy. This Mm. is a phenomenally unusual sports movie. And uh, of course, by a director who had, you know, guided, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman to an Oscar in Capote, Bennett Miller. So no surprise that we have a nerd directing a nerdy approach to baseball. And yet it works so well in this movie. Well, it's funny you say that, John, because after me, after I watched it, I am more convinced that it's not a sports movie. <laughs> so we're definitely going to have that conversation. Be a fun debate. Um, of course, this comes from this is based on a true story about uh, the A's and Billy Bean. It's hmm. based on the book by Michael Lewis, who followed Billy Bean for a year. And this deals with this idea of what's called sabermetrics in baseball. Uh, yeah. 
here's a little bit of pre-production. Rachel Horowitz, who's the producer, went off on vacation and she said, I don't want to read anything that could possibly be a movie. I want to just relax. I don't want to deal with the movie industry at all. Oh, here's a nonfiction book about baseball and statistics. I'm going to read that. And of course she went, man, let's make a really good movie. Uh, And that's where it begins, gets picked up by Columbia. They hire Stan uh, Shervin to write the script. And this is the the story I wanted to tell is that frequently there are movies that could have been a completely different movie. Oh yeah. Um, And David Frankel was brought in to direct this film. He directed the devil wears Pratt. Prada. Uh, Steve Zellian was hired to write the script. He's got an amazing career with Searching for Bobby Fischer and Schindler's List, Falcon and the Snowman. He wrote Awakening, Civil Action. He wrote Gangs of New York. And then they fired David Frankel and brought in Mm -hmm. another director, which is Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, Soderbergh. He wanted to direct a very, very different movie. And I have brought in a special surprise guest, John, to talk (laughs) about that film because someone that is very near and dear to me Mm -hmm. worked on the Steven Soderbergh version of Moneyball. Okay. And that person is casting director, my wife, Karen P. Morris. Karen Morris, welcome back to the Cinephiles. Hello, Cinephiles. It's good to be back. Um, Karen. Karen P. Morris. I like that. I like that approach. <laughs> gotta have the P. Gotta gotta have P. There are a million Karen Morrises, even in the entertainment business. It's weird. That's right. That's right. Uh, if I introduced her without the P, I would oh, have to retake it. There, there yeah, would be a fair point. <laughs> yeah. You'd be peed for sure. All right. I would be peed. <laughs> definitely, definitely would be peed. So, Karen, how did you get hired to work on the Steven Soderbergh film Moneyball? Um, it was actually funny. I got an email from Carmen Cuba, who was the casting director originally. I think she did. She end up doing the later one. I'm not uh, sure, but um, I don't think so. She was she was the original one because she worked a lot with Soderbergh on things. Mm. Um, and I got an email from her. I had never worked with her before, and it was a long process of waiting and interviewing. And it's going to start. It's not going to start. It's going to start. It's not going to start. And then I eventually. Um, came on at the very early stages when um, it was just Soderbergh and um, Brad Pitt was attached. Um, And then mostly in the beginning there, we were just looking at um, actual real people from the book, um, scouts and baseball players and managers and things like that. And then also looking at a few key... um, slightly lesser known comics to pop in and do the Paul de Podesta role, which I think mm-hmm. ended up not being Paul de Podesta, right? They ended up doing like a Right. They changed the name. So so I'm gonna yeah. start with these real people. So why were you interviewing real people for the movie? Well, uh, Soderbergh, as we know, really likes um sort of a cinema verite kind of stuff. He really likes to do um things that feel real. And so I think he, what, what the plan was is he wanted to do interviews with a bunch of these people, a lot of scouts, oh, a lot of managers, things like that, so that he could intercut um, either voiceover or actual video of the interviews with these people in his version of the movie. Um, I know that they had probably 20 or 30 people um, that he was planning on interviewing um, and he was planning on doing the interviews himself. Um, So they were really using that as a selling point when we were trying to get these guys to come in and 
do the interviews that you're going to be interviewed by Soderbergh himself. And he wants to talk to you about your experiences, either with Billy Bean, you know, the people, these are people that came up with him or either on teams with him or, right. um, scouted him or, you know, I think one was his baseball coach from high school, I think was even things like that. They really wanted to go deep to find how Billy Bean came up in baseball. That's so curious. Cause that sounds to me like, um, the Steven Spielberg, uh, Spielberg produced uh, "Once We're Brothers" or "We Were Brothers" or w- w- the the um, World War II one from HBO, where they interspersed, you know, actors playing scenes out and then cut back to the actual people talking about that scenario, that situation. That I, in my mind, as you speak about it, Karen, I visualize it. I think that would have been an incredible approach to making this story uh, for for sure. And maybe would have added even more authenticity. Imagine if they had gotten Art Howe to chime in on some of the scenes or some of the situations and get Billy Bean to countering points of views throughout the movie. So what an interesting approach for sure. Well, yeah. And I mean, who else to do that better than Steven Soderbergh? Like, exactly. that's kind of the thing that he's really, really good at. So. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, John, they did yeah. have Art Howe. Oh, wow. Art Howe had agreed wow. to be part of the film. <laughs> um, How well, and, and this, this is this is this thing I want people to imagine is like you look at a film and you go, well, obviously, that's the only way you could tell this story. But in mm-hmm. fact, there's lots and lots of ways you could tell a story, particularly a story like this that's nonfiction. Sure. And, so, Karen, is this a normal thing that you do, contacting athletes and agents and coaches and things like that? Is that something normal? A- agents of actors? Yes. Um, not agents of baseball players. Not. Uh, yeah, no, this is a this was a very unusual thing for me. It was actually very um, uncomfortable at times because oh. it is it was so outside my wheelhouse. And, you know. I know you guys know that Steve is not, you know, a, a huge sports fan. And you can imagine I am even less of a sports fan than he is. So I'm out there, you know, I luckily I did know some of the names, like when they said, you know, contact Mookie Wilson and contact Daryl Strawberry. I mm. actually knew who they were, but then they had, you know, had me doing all these scout people. And, and I mean, I could list off a bunch of names for you because I, I pulled up the breakdown of the different oh. things that we were doing because it was just, I don't, I don't know who any of these people are. And I'm like having to reach out to them in a way that was, um, you know, I'm used to dealing with agents and managers of actors who are mm-hmm. used to people reaching out to talk to their people. I'm reaching out to these guys directly. I'm reaching out to their wives. I'm reaching mm. out to their children. I mean, like it was really, really unusual and weird. And, and it was, it was definitely a, a learning curve. Yeah. I imagine reaching out to the star ball players is no different than reaching out to the diva. Uh, sorry, not to the actors uh, and actresses. You might have divas on both sides of the ledger there. But when you start to go into the scouts, that's more of the nitty gritty. That's the day to day guys staying at the Howard Johnson's eating out of vending machines. So naturally, they might have a little bit of hesitation or suspicion about having to talk to a casting director out of Hollywood about something they were involved in. And most of these people roll on just to the next season. They're not as enamored or, you know, um, get caught up in the magic of uh, a particular season as much. You know, they're lifers. So that must have been very interesting to kind of figure out how to speak to people like this, for sure. Yeah, it it definitely was. And it was and it was funny, too, because when I was looking through my emails this morning, because I'm a pack rat and I don't get rid of anything, but (laughs) I have passports and you know, social security cards wow. that people were like emailing me for their start paperwork so that we could pay them to do these interviews <laughs> and stuff. Cause I was talking, like I said, to a lot of these people directly. And so like I have, 
you know, emails back and forth with, you know, some of these people that, again, I I can't remember all their names because there were so many of them, but it was just funny to think I'm just going, hey, um, I can't read the number on your passport. Can you confirm for me what those numbers are? And then I'd hand it (laughs) off to the payroll people so that they could get that stuff done. It was just, it was just funny and weird. Well, that sort of answers my next question, because I was going to ask, how far along in the process did you get? When I was looking through the emails, when I had left the project, there was a ton more of that stuff coming in. And so I was responding to all of these people saying, you need to talk to this guy, Alan, who's there. Because what happened is I was on it for about a month Mm. and they were waiting on a script revision and the script revision just wasn't coming and it wasn't coming and it wasn't coming. And after a while, they just couldn't justify having me and this other guy, um, Alan, who was the, um, he was, I think, more of an assistant and he was more working on the specifically baseball side of things. And I Mm. was going to be more of the associate working more on the actorly side of things when that finally happened, but it just never did. And so they eventually kind of dropped me off, kept him on. And then I was kind of forwarding things back and forth to him saying, Alan, can you, can you confirm with Ted that he got this? Can you confirm with John that you got this? You know, and it was just kind of a thing. So you get brought onto a film. There's not a finished script, but they're obviously spending a lot of money. I mean, is there, are you, is there a big staff? Are there producers? Are there what are, what's going on in the project outside of your office? We definitely had there was a production office. We were set up at um, one of the smaller studios. I can't remember, but it's one of the ones in Hollywood, one of the smaller studios in Hollywood. Um, we were set up there. There was there was accounting. There was production. Um, I believe, yeah, there must have been ADs and everything already because we were talking about schedules because that was one of the interesting things is that, like John was saying, these these are guys that mm. are, you know, in and out of motels and just going from this to that to the other thing. We were trying to do this, I think it was during when scouting during was going to be happening oh, again. Oh, my God. And so wow. I think they were planning on shooting in June. And I think it was like a real... <sighs> I, 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 I bow down to ADs so much. I would never, ever want that job. It is one of the most difficult and thankless jobs on the planet. But you can imagine if you're an AD trying to deal with the regular stuff that we deal with, with locations <laughs> and actors and schedules and all that kind of stuff. But then to throw in that you've got this random scout who's flying literally all over the country to check out the next baseball player at this high school or this college or this, you know, right. whatever. And so they were like, well, if, if you can guarantee that it's going to be on this date, you got to deal with this guy. But if the date moves at all, there's a very good chance that you're not going to have him. And so it was just... Right. Even more, I feel like it was even more stressful about that than it usually is because these people are so transient with the way that they live their lives going from point A to point B. I can only imagine because you're talking about people whose livelihoods depends on them finding the next big star, the next big player for their organization. And God help them if they send in a report. Uh, a few hours after another team has already exactly. sent in their scouter report and has like started the process of signing a kid that would have been great for the team you were scouting for on all because a movie studio, uh, you know, ran behind or had to change the day or had to change the hours. I mean, I can't even imagine how trying to finagle all of that. That sounds daunting as hell. 
J- j- just to reinforce this, what, part of what Karen's talking about is the job of the AD is to make the schedule and they're balancing so many variables already because mm. they have actor schedules. They have all of these scouts and baseball player schedules. And then they have, well, you can only use this location at this time. And there are all these budgetary concerns because maybe a location is really expensive or a particular actor is really expensive and you mm. have to shoot them out in three days. Well, and then well, there's things like um, you can only shoot till 9 p.m. at this location because it's a residential location and part of the contract is, you know, quiet hours at a certain time. And so, yeah, there's just so many variables. It is so complicated to figure out. So what's so crazy to me is that you're on a production that is barreling towards a shoot date. And then what happens? (laughs) Um, My understanding is it just fell out of Columbia. I think what I heard Mm. was that Amy Pascal was not happy with the rev- the script revisions that were coming or not coming. Um, and I think she just didn't want to put any more money into something that wasn't necessarily going to be what she was looking for. Mm-hmm. But that's just the little well, bit that I've gleaned from reading it, stuff. And it sounds to me like, you know, Soderbergh is a director at a level where if he doesn't he wants to make the movie he wants to make. And if he's not mm-hmm. going to be able to make that movie, he's going to walk away. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. my understanding. I mean, and I, I can't blame him. I mean, if, if, if he wanted to do it a specific way and was being told that that's not the way they wanted to do it, then, you know, I can't imagine he would want to make somebody else's movie. That's not his style. Yeah. Well, and as, as John said, it could have been a great movie. Yeah. You know, totally. I love Soderbergh. Approach. I think he's fantastic. I love his point of view. I think he's a really great director. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating too, because around this time we're looking at, this is his run from 2007 to 2010 here. Uh, Oceans 13, Che part one and two, the girlfriend experience, the informant, and then contagion in 2011 and then haywire. So very interesting process for him to go down and then he does something completely different like magic Mike. So he's in this experimental phase of filmmaking in his career. So I think his approach to Moneyball would have been, if I can say this even more of an art house approach to sports. So it would have been a very interesting take from his point of view on this all. So just, just, uh, yeah, you can do say here about it. I'll go, ah, no, they're the right, wrong one. They made the right decision, but you could argue Soderbergh would have gotten just as much of a quality film out of this story that Bennett Miller, Bennett Miller did. Well, and in particular, when you're dealing with a true story, Mm -hmm. you know, this is nonfiction. And, and I just read the book. You, you, you picked and choose, they picked and chose two hours of material to say, this is what we want to talk about. Right, well, there was a right. whole bunch of other stuff that's really interesting too, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that, that was what's so interesting to me. And, uh, while I wish that you had stayed on to work on this whole <laughs> film Moneyball, um, I also really liked the movie that we ended up with. Um, mm-hmm. so Karen, thank you so much for, dropping by coming all the way from our house from to the kitchen out to the office <laughs> to the office i really appreciate it um, thank you karen <laughs> thanks oh, for sorry. having me guys it's always fun to be on the cinephiles and it's nice when i can throw in a little bit of strange lore of a thing that never happened and became something completely different so and, and we still want to have you back sometime to do yes. another movie yes i'm i'm working on that i'm going through my list of movies that i want to watch to <laughs> you've see. been doing that for years i know i'm terrible i'm terrible i just i re- I re-listened to 
uh, All the President's Men the other day, and I had so much to say about it, and it was so great. And I just don't know that there's any other movie out there that I will have that much to say about. Do you you remember the quote that you taught me that you've told me over and over again that I would like to remind you of? The perfect is the enemy of the good. Yes, my my meditation (laughs) teacher. Don't let the don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. All right. All right. Thanks so much for coming by. (laughs) Thanks Thanks, for having me. Bye. Bye. So uh, Soderbergh, just as Karen has now left my office, Soderbergh has left the film. Hey, and it goes into what's called turnaround, which basically means you know Hollywood limbo. and the budget gets cut from 58 million to 47 million. Brad Pitt takes a pay cut, but mm. also comes, becomes a producer and they bring in another executive producer who has been in the news a lot lately. And that is Scott Rudin. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's um, yeah. Yeah. Do we want to get into it? I don't feel like, I feel like no. we can tell our fans, Google it and see all the stuff that's happening. Uh, for yet another terrible producer uh, whose behavior is quite abhorrent. Uh, and you can read all about it in the trades and in the websites. Uh, all, all I will say is that it's a, it's a very different situation from Harvey Weinstein, sure. but it's really similar in the sense that, man, this guy had made a ton of great stuff and seems like a real asshole. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And was allowed to run rampant because he was successful for so yeah. long. That's yeah. that's the Harvey Weinstein similarity. Yeah. Um, uh, and he brings in Aaron Sorkin uh, to work on the script. Um, and Aaron Sorkin, he did again with Scott Rudin, the play of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird that I saw in New mm. York. That's an amazing version of that play. Um, and Aaron Sorkin said he would only do it if Steve Zalian was cool with it. Because he didn't, I mean, this is a great writer and he doesn't want yeah. to come in and step on another great writer's toes. And Zalian said, fine. And they actually worked simultaneously. So they're each doing drafts at the same time. And basically what they said was like sort of the, the dialogue and the humor and the irony. Well, that was coming out of Aaron Sorkin's computer and mm-hmm. the more deep character human stuff that was coming off of Zalian's computer. And they mm. put it together to make this film that we see. Yeah. Um, would you like to uh, enter the world of Moneyball? Let's have some fun. Let's do it. So we start this film with a quote. And the quote is, it's unbelievable how much you don't know about the game you've been playing all your life. Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle. And, I, you know, this is an incredible. I don't want to say this. Um, uh, just to, uh, to be honest with everybody before we even dive too, too deep into it. Uh, and I should have said this before we started, Steve. Uh, this is, um, I remember all this happening. I, I watched it in real time. I was aware of this. I'm a Yankees fan. So I was always aware of other teams in the AL who were playing well. The A's had done such a good job the year before, but I always felt like these small market teams that would get these hundred wins. The regular season is fine, but it rarely led to them being successful in the postseason. It wasn't until the Diamondbacks did it. And of course, the saw, although the Sox to a degree did it a few years later after this film. But yeah, at the time, I was like, this is a great plucky team. And it's great that they get the best out of it and shows you the team sometimes is better than stars. But in the end, they always seem to fall short. And uh, so I was curious to see how this movie was going to go. And using a New York Yankee Mickey Mantle quote to start right. the movie uh, <laughs> is so interesting when it's going to be, a, in essence, mentioned quite a few times through the movie that it's th- th- that they're measuring themselves financially against the New York Yankees who are always considered the top um, uh, team to spend money on players. What I, what I really wonder about is what's the context for that quote? 
Like, no, good point. Did, did, did he say it in the middle of him playing? Did he say it 20 years mm. later? Did he, you know, who? I, that's what I'm really curious about. Yeah. Um, but we go from this quote to archival footage, October 15th, 2001. It's the postseason, as you say. And we're mm. watching the A's uh, play against the Yankees in the American League elimination game. And Jason Giambi is a guy we hear a lot about. Mm-hmm. Scores uh, a run on a single. Then we see these numbers come up, and these numbers are key to the movie. Yeah. $114,457,768 versus $39,722,689. And then it fills in what these numbers mean. And that is the Yankees payroll versus the A's payroll. So already a setup of David versus Goliath, Steve, yep. very clearly David versus Goliath, the underdog A's, everybody connected to the A's are underdogs. Yeah. And then we see in this archival footage, which by the way, includes Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. Um, th- and this is Giuliani at the height of his America's mayor. Right. Um, Cause this is only a couple of months after September 11th. It's October. It, yeah. Uh, it's, 2001. It's, it's a month and four days. I mean, yeah, it's month and four really, days. really soon. And as the game is playing, there's this guy sitting alone in the stands without the game, and he <laughs> flicks on a radio. And we start to hear that the Yankees won and immediately switches it off. Um, and he switches on and switches off. <laughs> and that, of course, is Brad Pitt playing Billy Bean. Superstitious galore. Yeah. He is, and it's funny too. This is all, that's totally true. That's in the book. Mm -hmm. He Mm -hmm. really did all this stuff. He really was angry. He really Mm -hmm. did break stuff. He really didn't watch the games. You know, that is all totally true. And he's gets in his car and he breaks that radio that he's been holding in his car, tosses it out the window of the car, gets (laughs) out of the car and steps on the radio. That is a great opening of a movie. Absolutely. And the next thing we hear is that Jason Giambi, who's the basically the A's best player, their star, has been traded. And who has he been traded to? The Yankees. Yeah, the Yankees. And we go from there to a meeting between Billy Bean and the owner of the A's, Stephen Schott. How are the guys doing? As a killer, it's a tough one to swallow. He'll do better next year. We were close, though, weren't we? We were so close. Right there. Don't withstand it. You got to feel good about that. I feel, feel about I feel great about it. I feel great about it. Which is a complete <laughs> lie. And he just makes a complete turn. We're not going to do better next year. Just what you want to hear from your general manager. Why not? The thing that I really like about this movie, and maybe a holdover, Steve, from what this interview we just had with Karen, maybe this whole Soderbergh rea- realistic approach to casting and to these characters uh, was a holdover. From uh, from Soderbergh and, and Bennett Miller employed it as well because there it lends an air of authenticity when you're watching an actor like Brad Pitt go toe to toe with the guy who's playing Steve Schott and Steve Schott seems like he's the actual owner of the A's because he's not zinging them back and forth he's kind of stumbling through the back and forth with uh, Brad Pitt so it makes it feel kind of subconsciously authentic so yeah. I, I thought it was kind of brilliant that he decided to go that route. And the reason that they're not going to be better next year is that they losing their three top guys, including Giambi. They'll find new guys. I need more money, Steve. Billy. I need more money. Real quick, the guy that plays Steve Schott is Bobby Kotick. And Bobby Kotick is the CEO of Activision Blizzard. So 
not an actor in any way, shape, or form, but but so but a producer, and he actually produced Skylanders Academy as well. Shout out to one of our friends. But this overall is interesting of is an interesting approach too, because you get a guy who is not an actor to play a CEO as another CEO, you know, and so it lends an authenticity to the back and forth that feels uh that just kind of puts you in the mood of this movie, in the mood of this organization in time uh, as well. Well, and I think what they do so well um, with the scene is that mm. you both characters make perfect sense. Yes, it, it it is Brad Pitt. It is Billy Bean's job to get as much money as he can to get the best team that he can. And right. this guy's like, this is how much money I have. Yeah, you know, I don't have seventeen million for for a ball player. I'm not asking you. For tens of 20 30 million dollars i'm just asking for a little bit of help just get me a little bit closer and i will get you that championship team and it's also a great window uh, right off the bat or a great introduction rather into the arrogance and the self-belief that billy bean has in himself to go toe-to-toe with an owner like this and be like come on give me the money i need the money you want to win don't you and the owner push him back and I'm sure uh, Mr. Kodak has had his uh, interactions sure. with people going, I need more money to make this game. This is all we have. You got to yeah. do what you got to do within the conf- uh, construct of the budget for this game. Uh, what can I tell you? So, yeah. Well, and I love the last moment where, where Billy's like, I'm not leaving here until I get more money. And there's a pause. And the owner says, what else can I help you with? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's fantastic casting. Oh, yeah. Totally. We're back with him at home and he's getting some kind of offer on the phone. He's trying to make a deal and it's supposed to be for $7 million, And then the guy changes the deal and mm. changes it to $8 million. And Billy mm. realizes that he is just being played. Yep. That they used him to get another team to up their bid. And there mm. was never a chance Billy was going to get this guy. Congratulations, asshole. You win. Let's go to the scout meeting. <laughs> I think this is like the key to the movie. And I'd be curious to hear what you think about it, because mm-hmm. there's all these things these guys say about the players that they're scouting. And honestly, it all sounds so idiotic to me, mm-hmm. purposely so. And I part of me wonders, like, are they giving these guys is, the, is this really fair to what major league scouts are like? Well, no, I think you've seen a, a lot of major league scouts are these lifers, man, and they're willing and they, they get paid a certain amount. And the ones that do find the, the the diamonds in the rough of the gems, sure, they get a little bit more, but not that much more. And so these guys do it, and the whole farm system knows they do it because they love it. And so they love being out there. They love traveling. They'll, and this is all they know how to do. And so there, this is, in essence, a lifetime job if you can be successful at it uh, and just keep working well into your old age. And this is how baseball works. Uh, and the NFL is the same way. Being old in sports is not a negative when you're in the front office. Mm. People actually respect that and admire that. It's other areas where they seek youth, obviously on the field, and then sometimes in the coaching ranks. Certainly more recently in the coaching ranks, youth has been more valued than it has been in the past. And so at this time in 2011, oh, 2000, uh, what is it, 2002, when this is happening, like this is, think of this is 19 years ago. So this was pretty much the norm having uh, older guys who are there uh, with their notebooks because they're not going to do stuff on computers they don't have their laptops and they're writing stuff out and they have all this all this all this dossier in essence on all these players 
and they're going back and forth with Billy. But, you know, here's the point of the movie. He's not a likable protagonist. He's kind of a dick a, oh, a yeah. number of times. But, you know, sometimes and, you know, we've said this about other directors, but sometimes in real life, you got to kind of be a dick to get stuff done because guys are or, and people rather are set in their ways. And so he's trying to rattle the cage a little bit here and go like, look, we're changing things. We're changing things and we've got to get on board with this. And these guys are naturally resisting because they're old men, Steve. And so they're set in their ways. Look, you and I are getting up there. We're set in our ways. It's just the way it works. And so you, you rebel against it a little bit. But his it's also a great window into the fact that he's a terrible what do they call that? His bedside manner is yeah, absolutely awful, horrible. Awful. Horrible bedside manner. Well, but, but this is but the thing I want to ask about is that yeah. when he when they are discussing players, these scouts, mm-hmm. they speak entirely in metaphor, not in numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good looking ball player. Can he hit? Yeah, he's got a beautiful swing, right, Barry? The ball explodes off his bat. He throws a club head at the ball, and when he connects, it pops off the bat. You can hear it all over the ballpark. A lot of pop coming off the bat. And if he's a good hitter, why doesn't he hit good? Yeah, so let me answer your question like this. It's sports, right? And it's dudes, Steve, in a, in a room. Dudes are going to talk like this. And old dudes definitely are about, are about the swing, about um his look even the girlfriend thing is yeah. something i've heard other men say got an ugly girlfriend what's that mean ugly girlfriend means no confidence i've heard other women say about men so i this is a human thing more than it is a dude thing this idea of like well, who you pick to be who you choose to be with is kind of how you see yourself that kind of thing i've heard that from a number of people through my life so it's that's not an unusual thing to be heard yeah it passes the eye candy test He's got the looks. He's ready to play the part. He just needs to get some playing time. I'm just saying, his girlfriend is a six at best. It's basically laying the groundwork or laying the uh, putting out there the line that separates Billy Bean from these uh, guys in, in the scouts. The scouts are very much about the eye test, what we call the eye test in sports. And general manager or Billy Bean, rather, is trying to find a new way through this equation. He's you can tell he's trying to figure out the, the old ways only work to get me to a certain level. I need to blow past this level somehow with a new way of thinking. And he's a fool to think that he's the old man. We're going to all of a sudden embrace his new approach to things. But to me, it felt very authentic to hear these guys who are sports guys talk about things in a certain way that does default to cliche or does default to kind of like outside things rather than addressing the question directly. Well, this is what I think. This is why I think this scene is fundamental to the movie. And Mm. it was funny. I I liked, I never answered the question about how I came to the film. Karen and I watched it at the arc light. It wasn't that interesting an answer. I'll tell you this right now, but you know, Mm -hmm. we just saw it in a movie theater, liked it a lot. Reading the book really blew my mind because I, and, and this is the thing that is really gotten me thinking is I think this is not just about baseball. I think Mm. this is about how we think about the world is Mm -hmm. that we walk around with these preconceived notions and we trust our gut about people we Mm -hmm. meet, about our plans, about how to spend money, how to invest, political, philosophical, all these things. We kind of, because that's how forever humans got around in the world. The best thing to trust was your gut. And I think this movie is challenging that idea is Mm -hmm. that, Saying like, no, there's a different way to approach what we're trying to do. And the first thing is actually asking the question, like, what are we trying to do here? And you can watch Billy getting more and more frustrated throughout this scene until he finally goes, 
we we see him like making the hand gesture, like the blah. I'm making it for John, so yeah. you can see it. Like the blah 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 <laughs> hand gesture, and someone says, "Billy, is that a suggestion?" Guys, you're just talking, talking la 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 la, like this is business as usual. It's not. And they say we're trying to solve the problem. I like this. You're not. You're not even looking at the problem. So Grady was played by Ken Medlock, who was a, a baseball player, is a real baseball guy. In addition to being mm -hmm. an actor, he played for the Dodgers under La Russa. He says, we're very aware of the problem. This is going to be his main antagonist in the scouts. This is the main guy. Look, Billy, we all understand what the problem is. We have to okay, replace. Okay, good. What's the problem? The problem is we have to replace three key players in our nope. lineup. What's the problem? Same as it's ever been. We've got to replace these guys with what we have existing. No, what's the problem, Barry? And this is where you're totally right. He mm. is condescending. He is oh, yeah. rude. He is brusque, insulting, angry. The problem we're trying to solve is that there are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap. And then there's us. <laughs> Which, by the way, the A's were not the poorest team in the league. They were, I think, second poorest. Yeah. <laughs> God forbid, second poorest. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Boston's taking our kidneys, Yankees taking our heart, and you guys are sitting around talking the same old good body nonsense like we're selling jeans. And think about this, Steve. I mean, it's 2002, right? I mean, this film is being made in 2011. Over the last 10 years, you've seen the explosion of technology becoming the predominant way of how we function in the world. Nerds becoming the dominant alpha section of the world. Do you know what I'm saying? And in 2002, this is when this transition starts to kind of happen. Right. And so you're seeing these old school guys who were probably like captain of their football teams or head of their baseball teams. Guys like you talk about Grady, who's had this experience and they're looking at this kid who's a failed athlete. We find out in the movie, a failed athlete. I couldn't make it in the majors as an athlete. And he wants to now upset the apple cart by defaulting to statistics. And, you'll, and you're all old men listening to a young guy try to tell you how to do your job. So the animosity is there just from nerd versus stats, nerd versus I'm sorry, nerd versus jock, and then also young versus old. So it's it's such a great way to introduce the um, divisions that we will be exploring in the movie. And also like Cinderella Man, you see certain people turned into villains who aren't actually villains, weren't actually villains in right. real life. They were just people who had differences of opinion in this situation. But it's a movie, so you got to have a villain. Well, th th this is the great, thing. It's great. Uh, he, absolutely. He's fantastic. Yeah. Well, and this is – I. I love Aaron Sorkin. I think mm. he is an unbelievably good writer. Yes. But I don't think he cares very much about reality. And there's <laughs> several movies that he wrote that are about real things that don't, that are filled with a lot of things that aren't true. That yeah. are pretty misleading. And obviously social network, same with the Steve Jobs movie. That's just yep. not really real in terms of people that really know a lot about Steve Jobs. Same mm -hmm. with the, um, uh, what's the movie about Afghanistan? I should know. Char Charlie Wilson's War. Oh, Charlie he, Wilson's yeah, War. Right. It's like, is that Aaron likes to bring in things mm -hmm. that make things more dramatic that aren't actually what was going on. Grady yeah. being Grady being one of them that isn't that realistic. But this moment, I think, is great. Is there another first baseman like Giambi? No, not really. No. And if there was, could we afford him? No. Nope. Then what the fuck are you talking about, man? If we try to play like the Yankees in here. We will lose to the Yankees out there. 
And I love this, right? Because this is once again, him confronting someone telling him, let me do my job. You do your job. Let us do our job, right? And this is going to be this kind of foreshadowing the battle is going to have with Art Howe as well in the movie, that version of Art Howe in the movie. It's an interesting uh, territorial battle that's happening uh, behind the scenes of this club as we're watching the movie. Well, and this is one of the things that's weird, I think. And and as you point out, there's a lot of inaccuracies in the film. Yes, yes. One of them is, is that the idea that the A's are total failures when they just just lost mm-hmm. to the Yankees in the elimination game of the playoffs. Yeah. Th- they're n- uh, the idea that this system is completely doesn't work. That doesn't make sense. Right. Right. And the fact is, uh, some of this sabermetrics and stat stuff, they had actually started in 1999. This didn't all just happen in 2002 it was a slow build the big year is 2002 but but it didn't all just happen then yeah and some of the research i did uh um for this uh, bill james book apparently had a billy bean had known about it since 95 yeah Uh, so you know this is just kind of certain things had to take their uh, time to get there. And we're seeing it in this movie. Well, and Bill James, for those of you who don't know, I certainly didn't know anything about him. He's Mm. a guy who started writing these essays in the mid Mm seventies and would put out this annual baseball analytics book and people slowly, but surely started to discover him, you know? So Mm -hmm. this, these ideas had been around quite a long time. Yeah. And speaking about things that have been around quite a long time, we cut now to the backstory, which mm-hmm. is Billy Bean in 1979. This son is going in the first round. He can run, he can field, he can hit with power. And we're seeing all this interest in this high school kid. And so now we know like, oh, Billy was a player. It sounds like he's going to be a great player. Yeah. I love the way they handle the backstory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the way they bring it out in little pieces to fill this in. Again, it almost feels like this or sh- this is of what Karen, and this is such an interesting way to look at this film now after Karen's interview, this idea of once again, you're hearing voiceovers mm-hmm. that are essentially simulating um, scenes from the past and you're watching the action with the voiceovers accompanying it. So maybe this is part of Steven Zayn's script that he had written with Soderbergh's under Soderbergh's direction before he left, before Soderbergh left the project. So some of the remnants are here in the backstory of Billy Bean. Well, that's, that's where it, it, it's funny having developed projects mm. and in particular having developed projects that never actually got made. <laughs> the, uh, the amount of changes you you go through like there was one project I was doing with Hoover that was being a reality show and we mm-hmm. must have gone through 30 different versions and at each different and at one point Discovery was interested and then National Geographic was interested and then we we're trying to pitch it to PBS and then we were trying to take it to the to Fox and at each time they asked us to change it in certain ways. And yeah. then they passed and then we went to the next place, but we still had the changes from the previous place. And it was like, well, do we go back to the original thing? And then it's like, and like someone would ask like, well, we'd rather it be more like this. And then we'd go like, well, funny, you should mention, here's a version of it <laughs> where it's like that. And it's a certain point, Hoover and I are looking at each other going, I don't even know what the show is. <laughs> We've been trying to sell, sell it for so long. It's become yeah. so many different things. <laughs> hey, Billy. Hey, Mark. Good to see you, man. Please sit down. And Mm -hmm. we're having a meeting that is about some kind of a trade. And we're in with the general manager of Cleveland. And there's a bunch of guys who we are front office guys. And among those 
bunch of guys is Jonah Hill, who mm-hmm. is Peter Brand. So this is based on the character Paul D. Podesta. Mm-hmm. And when Karen was working on the film, the character in the movie was named Paul D. Podesta. Mm-hmm. And the person that they, I believe, had almost signed a deal with was Dimitri Martin to play him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And, and then when the new script changes came in, Paul D. Podesta said, I'd like you to take my name off of it. Yeah. Because this doesn't really represent who I am. And, and it sounds like that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because... The guy, the way the guy is played by Jonah Hill is not how this guy actually was. Yeah. First of all, he graduated from Harvard. Second of all, the guy was in great shape. Yeah. Second of all, the guy was a former athlete um, and, and and been a lifetime baseball person, like uh, had been eventually transitioned in the front office and was doing so. He wasn't a nerdy, schlubby guy who's slightly overweight, who was like, you know, uh, not being listened to by anybody. It's a completely different characterization. Uh, so, I mean, I think Deep Podesta had every right to be like, ah, this isn't me, Pally. Yeah. You can put some remnants of me in here, but this isn't me for sure. Well, yeah. and a serious athlete, too, we should say, is that he, yes. he played baseball and football for Harvard. Now, Harvard's not like playing football for <laughs> Alabama or something, but right, it's, right. it's still, you know, playing serious, serious ball. He was a real athlete. Yeah, he'd um, been a scout, a GM, yeah, an executive, yeah. And they start trying to negotiate something, and uh, Jonah Hill, Peter Brand, is listening to all this, and he makes a uh, offer, and Jonah Hill whispers something to another guy who whispers something to the Cleveland general manager. I think it's going to be a hard no on Garcia. <laughs> <laughs> so here, here's what doesn't make sense to me about this. Okay. Is that the implication is that Jonah Hill's got these ideas. Yeah. Or Peter Brand has got these ideas, but nobody's listening. Mm-hmm. And yet what we just saw was that they're totally listening to him. Right. Which is a little bit of a weird contradiction. Well, they're listening to him about the smaller players. Yeah. They're not going to listen to him about the big players. And so that's where you make your bones. And so for him in this moment, it's just like the smaller transactions. That's all they're allowing him to kind of talk about. And we have Billy Bean in the cubicles looking around for this guy because he (laughs) noticed him in the room. Yeah. And he comes right. And and, and what's so funny is Peter Brand notices Billy Bean looking for him. He's kind (laughs) of. Not wanting to be seen and comes up, goes right into his cubicle, sits down on the desk and says, hello. Who are you? I'm Peter Brand. What do you do? Mostly player analysis right now. First job in baseball. It's my first job anywhere. And I love the next question. Whose nephew are you? Because Billy thinks the only reason that this young guy is being listened to is because he must be connected somehow. Who are you? I'm Peter Brand. I don't give a rat's ass what your name is. What happened in there? Billy realizes he's got to take him somewhere else. So he gestures. They walk away. They're in the garage. I think this scene is great. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's very clear that Peter has had this speech in his head. Mm-hmm. And has been waiting for someone to ask him the question. Yeah. There is an epidemic failure within the game to understand what is really happening. And this leads people who run Major League Baseball teams to misjudge their players and mismanage their teams. And then he apologizes because he feels like he's speaking disrespectfully. I apologize. 
to him about him managing his team. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> because he's and I get it. He's a young guy talking to the general manager of a team that just right. made it to the playoffs. People who run ball clubs, they think in terms of buying players. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. Baseball thinking is medieval. They are asking all the wrong questions. And if I say it to anybody, I'm I'm ostracized. Billy is loving this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because this is the antithesis of the scene he just had with the scouts. Because mm-hmm. he's going, we can't do things the same way. The scouts are going, this is how we always do it. And here's a guy saying, we can't do things the same way. Everybody's thinking is medieval. I, I love the scene because he's also, and then the scene ends. He's like, okay, Yale economics, baseball, and then just walks off, you know? So he, there's no resolution to the scene in Jonah Hill's favor, at least at this point, or Peter Brand's favor, at least at this point. Um, but I like the interaction, you know, once again, it's to lay the groundwork here. The statistics is the approach to baseball, you know, and I love it. I, I think the film is so revolutionary in portraying this. Do they take some liberties? Sure. But I love that they put this out on the table because this was a massive debate. I mean, sports talk was consumed with this when it was happening in the early 2000s. Um, and the Red Sox winning the series two years later kind of put it to bed as that it was a positive change in baseball. But at the time, it was very much a, a, a you know, frustrating situation and people were super upset. And because... Sports people, no matter what you want to say or how much we've advanced, sports people are jocks. Sports people are fans. And for them, you start to bring in, well, if you carry the one and do the Pythagorean theorem, like they get pissed off. <laughs> like, no, I know who's fucking good and I know who's not fucking good. I don't care what's on your paper. And fans always think it's inherent within fandom. I know who the best player for us is. I know who you should be starting, who should be sitting on the bench, who should be coaching the team general managing the team, owning the team, we think we know just from our eyes, we think we know who's best, you know? And so this whole statistics thing was a revolution. Well, and it's a lot, it's less fun, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. It's Yes, exactly. It strips away and it makes it uh, on the paper, which is super frustrating because people aren't mathematically inclined for the most part, Steve. So it's a frustrating. Statistics is a tough, tough study. Well, I'll put it another way too, is that... Mm. um is that statistically, if you get a player on first base, it doesn't matter how you got him there. Yeah. The, the value of a player on first is the same. Yes. But if you get a player on first base that makes just the perfect base hit in the pocket, you know, or versus a player that walks to first, yeah. which one gets the crowd to cheer? Exactly. Is that the walk is boring. The right. base hit is exciting is that an out is an out. But if someone makes a spectacular diving catch, you're like, oh, my God, that guy is amazing. Right. But what is the value of the out? Well, the value of the out's the same. We work emotionally. That's what mm-hmm. humans do. That's how we yep. operate. And it's funny, too, because the fact that he's an economics uh, guy from Yale makes perfect sense because there is a direct connection between so-called money ball or saber metrics, which is the Bill James name for it. Yeah. Uh, and the stock market. Is that hmm. it's based on a lot of the logic that came out in terms of the, and this is stuff I'm not an expert on in any way, but in terms of how they figured out derivatives and all of these uh-huh. games that people started to play in the seventies that led yeah. to, you know, the financial crash and a whole bunch of other stuff. It started with breaking things down into tinier and tinier statistics because 
we didn't have computers that could handle this stuff. As you start to yeah. have computers that can do all this math really fast, you can look at things in a way more granular way. And mm -hmm. so what Bill James started to do was to take some of that statistics power and put it in a way that had not been done before. One yeah. other quick thing about uh, the financial market just because is that, and this has had a lot of discussion today, is basically most of financial advice is bullshit. <laughs> what they have found is that there can be totally some advisor, stock market, investment consultant, whatever, mm -hmm. who has an amazing run and totally beats the market. But over time, they actually largely don't. Yeah. And so because then they'll have a really bad year where they'll lose to the market because they're right. betting more aggressively and because they think they know what's going to happen. And in fact, nobody can predict what ha what's going to happen. And so there's a big, so like if you were to, if you mm -hmm. were going to hire an investment consultant, John, you would pay them a certain amount of your total investment, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you, let's say you pay them 1%. Well, then therefore they have to at least beat the market by 1% to make it worth your while. And what it looks like is that over time, they'll probably do 0.9% better than the market, which mm -hmm. means you're losing, you know, a percentage or two every yeah. year rather than just invest in an index. So there's all this money flowing away from financial advisors today. And just like, just invest in the S&P 500. You'll do better over time. Yeah. <laughs> because we're not as smart as we think we are. No. You know? I hope that applies to crypto. I hope that applies to crypto. So. Oh, crypto is what, well, man, we're going to see. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of, I'm, but People are going to, a lot of money is going to move around. Yeah. I, uh, I'd like to apologize to every person who told me to invest in crypto five years ago. You were absolutely right. And I was wrong to laugh at you. And I, I can't tell you when I read these stories, I kick myself in the ass before not having uh, invested even the little amount that I had just to see where it would go. You know? But yeah. you, you could just as easily have gotten screwed. Yeah, you're right. You absolutely. Know? You're absolutely I mean, right. There's a book. Uh, we're, we're way off topic at the moment, but mm. there's a book called Nickel and Dimed. Yeah. Um, is that what it's called? No. Nickel and Dimed? Oh, okay. It's not called that. It's called... Hey guys, it's Steve jumping in just for a second because you know how much I hate it when I can't remember something. The book I couldn't remember is called Pound Foolish by Helene Olin. It's a 2012 book about the myths of the personal finance industry, and it is really worth your time. You know, there's that whole, for the price of a latte every week, you could become a millionaire in 10 years. By, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's First of all, the math is all wrong, and that's bullshit. <laughs> um, but, the, but the big thing about it is that Part of the key to being su successful as an investor yeah. is having enough money that you don't have to touch it in the bad times. Right. Because if you just put your money in like an S&P 500 index and you just let it sit there, it would go up, yeah. you know, over and over and over again. But there would be times like 2008 or times like a year ago where it'll crash. Right. And if you need the money when it crashes, like let's say you have a car accident and you got to get a new car, you have a medical expense or you have a business expense or, you know, mm -hmm. if you have to take your money out when it's low, you're fucked. Yeah. And so people, it's very, very hard for people to get over the level necessary in order to start building up wealth. Mm. It's really, once you get there, that's why yeah. rich people just keep getting richer because they yeah. don't have to take the money out. Right. You know, they can afford to weather the storm and not only can they afford to weather the storm, they take advantage of it because yeah. the market goes down and they buy up a bunch of stuff. You know, that's mm -hmm. why the rich got way richer in the last year because interest rates were so low that yeah. even though, you know, most people, most of America was really struggling. There were a bunch of people who are like buying houses and mm -hmm. 
investing in the stock market and getting richer and richer and richer because they could weather the storm. Right. Yep. You know, good point. Yeah. But we digress. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we go back in time again to hear more about this potential superstar, Billy Bean. Very rare do you come upon a young man like Billy who can run, who can field, who can throw, who can hit, and who can hit with power. And they go, you know, he's got to make a choice. If he wants he to be center fielder for the Mets, here's the check. Yeah. It, this is a big decision in, in in the book as well, and it was like a real close thing. He, he mm -hmm. was real close to just going to Stanford. And he didn't. He took the check. Hello? Hey, it's Billy Bean. You drafted me in the first round. Because he got drafted in the first round. By the Mets. Yeah. Along with Daryl Strawberry. After I left, you looked me up in your computer. I did, yeah. You, you were a good player. Cut the crap, man. Would you have drafted me in the first round? I'd have taken you in the ninth round. No signing bonus. <laughs> Pack your bags, Pete. I just bought you from the Cleveland Indians. It's a great scene of tests. Do you know what I'm saying? It tests yeah. uh, this guy, how loyal this guy's going to be and how honest this guy's going to be with him. So, and by, by the way, having looked a little bit at Billy Bean's career, mm -hmm. he didn't, he wasn't a terrible player. No, he wasn't I a mean, terrible player. But when you're pitched, uh, Steve, at five tool, you, you think you're going to be a superstar. Yeah. And when, when your mind thinks that possibility is out there and you don't reach that possibility, it really messes with your confidence. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he's in the majors for like six or seven years. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, that's a real career, but it, it's exactly right. It's against his expectations. Mm -hmm. Pete shows up at the Coliseum. By the way, a lot of it, it was shot at the Coliseum and shot at Dodger Stadium, kind of pretending to be the Coliseum. Gotcha. It's so funny, by the way, being a Bay Area guy and having seen games at the, at the Oakland Coliseum mm. at a particular, like there's these shots of the bridge that people walk over. Um, to get into the stadium, mm -hmm. that bridge comes from the BART station, which is the subway system in the Bay Area. Mm. And it is the same BART station that if you fly into the Oakland airport, which I did all the time, you <laughs> go to that BART station. So I've been right at that bridge dozens of times, not going <laughs> to games, but just because I would fly into Oakland a lot. Um, right on. And Peter got in there early and hands him some papers and says, I wanted you to see the players' evaluations. I asked you to do three. Yeah. How many did you do? 47. Okay. Actually, 51. I don't know why I lied just then. <laughs> By the way, I have no way of knowing, but that's an Aaron Sorkin line. Yeah, it seems like, yeah. That's totally Sorkin. <laughs> People are overlooked for a variety of biased reasons and perceived flaws. Age, appearance, personality. Billy, of the 20,000 notable players for us to consider, I believe that there is a championship team of 25 people that we could afford because everyone else in baseball undervalues them. And we hear the term, the Island of misfit toys. <laughs> and this is the first time we see like Chad Bradford, who's this relief pitcher that nobody wants. Mm -hmm. he, he says he's the most undervalued player in baseball because he throws funny. Cause he's a, yeah. what you call a submariner. Mm -hmm. Again, I think this is a profound idea because mm -hmm. we often don't think about our goal. We think so. So like here, and I'm not, don't want to make this political in any way, mm. but I'm going to say is that if you think about our political arguments, 
Mm-hmm. Like, let's say the healthcare argument, like you and I being liberal guys, we want some kind of national healthcare system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And people on the other side want a system that they believe the private industry could be better. But in fact, that is not what you and I want. And that is not what they want. We actually all want the same thing. Mm-hmm. We want the best possible healthcare delivered to the most people for the least money. Yep. So if someone said to you and proved it, John, there is a privatized healthcare system that would deliver that. I think, and they proved that that was true. We would go, sure. Yeah. And if we could really Sounds prove good. our system, they would go, sure. But instead, what we normally are doing is we're fighting for I- our idea of what we want and they're mm-hmm. fighting for their idea of what they want. And so, and this is politics throughout. How yeah. do I win? Not how do I get the goal? Yeah. It's, I want more cops on the street. I want fewer cops on the street. No, we all want to lower crime. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, we yeah. actually all want the same thing. Right. You know, and so th- th- this whole thing, it was like, no, it doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't, what the goal is to get this many runs and allow this many runs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's meet Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> the last movie we saw him in was Punch Drunk Love. Yeah. Which was, what was that, 2007, I think? Yes, I think so. So so this is like, you know, four years later. Mm -hmm. I think, and the the first movie we ever saw Philip Seymour Hoffman in was Boogie Nights. And we've also seen him in The Big Lebowski. Those Mm -hmm. Maybe there are other movies we've done on The Cinephiles with him. I'm not sure. But Mm -hmm. if you look at those movies, it should prove to you why this guy is one of the great actors of all time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because they're unrecognized, even though he's... Always Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm-hmm. These characters are so different. Yeah, and he's such a character actor who occasionally is at least one of those guys that is a character actor who's occasionally a lead. And I wonder, because Bennett Miller had kind of, you know, directed him to an Oscar, I wonder if Bennett was like, hey, would you step into this role and play this part? Because, like, again, like I said earlier, he looks nothing like Art Howe, whereas... No. Whereas I could argue Billy Bean, a lot of people have argued he's even more attractive than Brad Pitt, if that's possible. So uh, this is such an interesting choice, but he brings the right amount of um, rebelliousness or defensiveness and confidence in what he's doing um, to push back against Billy Bean. Plus, he's a, such a physical counter to Billy Bean as well. So it makes a, a, it makes it a very interesting battle that's happening, not just visually, but also uh, in your mind, in the back of your mind as you're watching this on subconscious levels. He is so sad <laughs> to be around. He's such yeah. an Eeyore. You know what I mean? Well, he's, he has to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. he's so put upon in every mm-hmm. moment. And he is the most poorly treated character in this film. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. He's the Max Bear of this film. Max Bear in Cinderella Man is not as bad as they portrayed him in that movie. Um, and Art Howe is not as bad as he's portrayed in this movie. Uh, and he has spent the last 10 years telling anyone who will listen in interviews and what have you uh, that uh, this was an unfair treatment, unfair, unfair portrayal. A lot of people have come out to defend him as well, who've worked with him or played for him, saying this is unfair portrayal. And watching it this time, I felt more sympathy for Art Howe for sure, because it's he's right. Essentially, Billy Bean wants to manage the team without managing the team. Uh, and that's a tough thing when you hire a manager and you want him to do your th- you want him to bring you success. You can pick up all the players you want. 
But like this idea that you're going to tell him where to put the players and when to play the players, just fucking manage the team while you're at it. Then, you know, what am I here? I'm just a I'm just a go between. And I, who, what person worth his pride wants to be that? Well, th- this is one of the questions I wanted to ask you. So in the book, yeah. Yeah. it says it basically says we all think that managers manage the team, but really the decisions are made by the general manager. I've never that sounds totally wrong to me. What do no. you think? It's not true. It's it's because it, nothing is an absolute in sports. In some situations, you have a coach and a GM who's the same person. Bill Parcells, notorious for that, Greg Popovich with the Spurs. You have these uh, coaches who are manager, general managers, because Bill Parcells once said very famously in an, in a press conference, it, it 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 doesn't make sense to me to ask me to cook the dinner if you're not going to let me buy the groceries too. Right. So it's that kind of thing. So you see the logic, but. It's rare when a GM who is also the manager of the team succeeds because both jobs take so much time and effort uh, in your day and in your uh, season that it is it is the rare person who can balance both, you know. And so to me, I think it's always a case by case basis in some situations. General managers hire coaches they know who worship at their feet. And so they'll do whatever they tell them to do. And then there are other situations where GMs come in and they haven't selected the coach and it causes friction because both both uh, sides are trying to impose their will on the team so they can get credit for the success of that team. So it's not an absolute. It's a very much a fluid situation depending on the team and uh, the league. One of the things this the book and the movie are trying to do is say, this is right, mm. you know, and I think there is an amazing truth here that is worth looking at, but I don't think it's the only truth or the absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Like the way, the way they talk about players is that players are a bunch of statistics and that those stats are static, that they don't change, you know, like, no, this guy with a sweet swing where the ball pops off the bat, he can't learn to be a big league pe- hitter he is what he is and that's not true like people do change people coaches do matter you know oh yeah you know you hear all the time about a player who ups their batting average by this many percent by adjusting Mm -hmm. their swing in this way well that's not a general manager thing you know right Right. that's a coaching thing absolutely coaching thing yeah um but this and the thing is again i i'm with you i really felt for art howe Mm -hmm. watching it this time and this scene of like he's on a one-year contract and billy was not going to give him a better contract and he's like i just won 102 games last season Yeah, you know, and it's just a, a one-year contract means to a manager just what it means to a player. And Billy, you know what that means in essence, knowing Billy's uh, uh, career as well. And so, uh, you know, and the way Billy even treats him, like you know, uh, kind of in the middle of something here, Art. I like you. I'm the fucking manager of the team, guy. Like you can't make time for me for a couple of minutes here to have this conversation. And of course, in reality, this conversation never happened. He was on a two-year contract through 2003 with the option of another year year being picked up so um art house says the conversation never happened and that his his uh, agent has always handled his contracts and he would never talk to a gm about his contract so yeah i mean well and this is the it's dramatic yeah you know in terms of a movie Um, well and and to your point from a while ago is that i do think billy bean is right about a lot of things but he's an asshole yes you know, terrible. that's a manner. Yep. T- yeah. Terrible. And we're about to see him continue to be terrible in the next scene because we're back in with our scouts. 
He says, you're trying to replace Giambi. We can't do it. Now, what we might be able to do is recreate him. Recreate him in the aggregate. Right there, that's a word that I probably doesn't come up, didn't come up a lot in scouting <laughs> meetings. And he goes over on base percentage. This is the big stat. And I think yeah. what they really did was it was combining slugging and on base percentage. Mm-hmm. So it's on base plus slugging. And he goes over each of the players and what they did in terms of their stats. And he goes and add that up and you get, and he snaps his fingers and points at Jonah Hill. <laughs> you want me to speak? When I point at you, yeah. And it's a bit. Again, I bet it's Sorkin. Yeah. This is a Sorkin kind of bit. Yeah. Uh, and we got a bunch of snaps. Billings. Yeah. Who's that? That's Pete. <laughs> does Pete really need to be here? Yes, he does. <laughs> and now they go over who they want. And one of them is Jason Giambi's little brother, Jeremy. Yeah. Uh, and he has the little magnetic name tag, which he tosses up on the board behind him, which I think is a great little bit of physical stuff. Yeah. And they go over what that guy's problems are, which is strip clubs and Vegas and weed. Well, his on-base percentage is all we're looking at now. And Jeremy gets on base an awful lot for a guy who only costs 285000 And number two, David Justice. Not a good idea, Billy. Old man Justice. Yeah, he was a good player but good for Atlanta as well and for the Yankees. And, of course, for those of you who know a little bit about gossip, he's also Halle Berry's ex husband or boyfriend and there were mm. a lot of accusations of physical assault from david justice on halle berry so mm. uh so just something to throw into the mix of uh, looking at this person as well his legs are gone great we'll be lucky to get 60 games out of him why do you like him because he gets on base and then scott hatterberg which they go who which mm-hmm. is by they would they wouldn't the guy had been in the majors for a while as a catcher they would know who he was. I know Boston wants to cut him and no one wants to pick him up. That's good for us. He's cheap. Are the scouts pleased with these uh, possible players? No, not even a little bit. Yeah, they're getting pissed off. And of course, the most pissed off guy is Grady. And I think this he, this actor is great in this role. Yeah. Look, that's all fine and well, but we've been working our asses off for the last six and a half weeks Grady. to make this ball club better. And you're shitting all over Grady. it. This is not a discussion. This is the new direction of the Oakland A's. We are card counters at the blackjack table. We're going to turn the odds on the casino. And then one of the coaches, Ron Washington, says, you're forgetting one thing. None of these guys knows how to play first base. Well, you're going to have to teach one of them. Teach? Which one? And again, it's a perfect storytelling in the cut. We cut to Little League photos and Chris Pratt. Mm-hmm. I totally forgotten he was in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's because I didn't really know him. I didn't watch Parks and Rec. You know, I didn't really know who he was until Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, so you hadn't watched Parks and Rec. Okay, yeah, got it. Um, he lost 30 pounds for this movie because mm. they had said he was too fat. And he gets a call from Billy Bean. Uh, he's really funny in this movie. Oh, yeah. Hello? Scott. Yes? It's Billy Bean of the Oakland Days. Yes. Can we talk? Uh, yeah. Do you want to let us in? Pardon me? We're out front. (laughs) He goes in. Yeah. He says, how's the elbow, Scott? You know, it's good. It's really good. It's great. Uh, I can't throw the ball. (laughs) Billy goes, yeah, you've thrown your last ball from behind the plate. Good news is we want you at first. (laughs) Guy's never played first base in his life. Yeah. And he's sitting there with Ron Washington. And Chris says, the thing is, you don't know how to play first base. That's right. It's not that hard, Scott. 
Tell him, watch. It's incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard. <laughs> hey, anything worth doing is, and we're going to teach you. <laughs> then this question, I think, is another key thing. He says, what about the fans? Because mm. the fans are going to hate him. Yeah. He's replacing the A's best player. He's never played first base. They're going to hate him. And it's like, and, and for Billy, that doesn't matter. This is a contract to play ball for the Oakland A's. Copy's been sent over to your agent. Discuss with your wife. Let us know. I'm a big fan of not listening to the fans about what to do. Uh, I love that part of the Billy being approached to it because you've got to be authentically you. What is you? And this is Billy. As much of a dick as he is, I like that. I like that he's very clear about what he thinks works because in the end, it's his ass on the line. You know, and so when uh, when it comes to sports, I'm a very big fan of not listening to what the fans tell you to do um, or ask you to do or try to intimidate you to do because they won't get fired. You will. So I like that he said that. And later on, when him and Peter Brandt are having that moment after everything's falling apart and he says to him, like, you know, um, are you in this thing or not? Because you can't say, well, I don't know how to explain these moves away. You can't even have that thought. You got to be committed to what we're doing here. So may not be the best way to approach things, but I like it. I, I couldn't agree more. I don't think, I mean, I think, I think in the end you got to be, you know, this is true for artists as well. You know, (laughs) like you, you're not, yes, we care what people think. Yes. We want people to like our work, but people, they can't dictate to you or to me who we are. Right. You know, yeah, yeah, like, you're the artist. Yeah. And, and, and this is, and the biggest thing is, is that if you really are going to believe in statistics, well, the fans have literally nothing to do with it. Yeah. You know, I, I will bring up something, Steve, real quick. Uh, and if you allow me a little Schmodown segue this year in the Schmodown, we essentially on the Finstock exchange, our faction are m- using a money ball approach <laughs> to the Schmodown. We went out with uh, me and Tom uh, Finstock, our manager. We had got together in the offseason and we said, we're going to keep Craig, Craig, the barbarian. He's our uh, scout. And Craig went out and found like 80 players that had submitted to be part of the league. And he interviewed them and then he quizzed them with particular uh, set of questions that we all spoke about um, and approved that were uh for whatever league the player wanted to be a part of star wars inner geekdom uh regular uh, you know teams singles and from that we collected a dossier that was about 90 pages long wow all the people and then from there we selected the ones we liked and then interviewed them and in the end then we had a draft board because there was an actual draft a real draft we weren't assigned players we actually drafted our players and we chose uh, out of the ele- uh, 10 players on the team, I think that's how many we have, we chose six rookies, one sophomore, and then the three veterans to be our t- And people lost their minds. They made fun of us. They uh, went on all these shows talking about how they didn't know who these players are. The person, the two people who were supposed to analyze it, who were selected by the Schmodown, by Christian, the Schmodown rundown guys, they were like tossing up their papers, not knowing who the hell these players were that we selected. And right now we're in second place with 800 uh, winning percentage. 
Wow. Because we have moneyballed the fuck out of this thing. <laughs> and we've trained everybody through since the beginning, since we selected them. We have been on them on one long Twitter thread, having multiple matches, multiple study sessions, multiple approaches to the game, all this kind of stuff. And it was kind of our way to kind of completely upset the apple cart. Everyone else was selecting former former star players or former players who were great. We knew with me, with Craig, with JT, and with Tom, if we could line up the right uh, crew of players who believed in our system, that we could be successful. No one anticipated, even us, how successful we've been so far. It is only June, but damn, we've done an incredible job to keep pace. And we have... Like the, the top team has a five, 600 winning percentage, but they, they've got more points because they're playing in championships because they're, mm. they got top, they're a top baby team. Our team is slowly building piece by piece. So when I was watching the movie today uh, in preparation for this pot, for the podcast, I was just blown away at how we had done this approach without knowing we were doing this approach. Do you know mm. what I'm saying? And so, um, I feel a sort of sense of pride in that. So I just wanted to kind of find a, have a moment here to say that. I, I think that's a fascinating and B, <laughs> it, it made something click in my brain, which is yeah. every once in a while it's come up the idea of, well, is Steve, are you ever going to be on the Schmodown or anything mm. like that? And I've never been that into the idea. And, and I finally put my f- finger on why I think I would be the Billy Bean, which is, I think, <laughs> you know, people, you look at me, it's like, oh, the guy knows a lot about movies. He's mm. smart. He's got a lot of knowledge. I don't think I would deliver that well on the Schmodown. In, like, in, you mean gameplay during in gameplay. gameplay, like, right. like on paper, it might look like I would be really good at it, but mm. I'm actually not that good at names and dates. I mm. mean, you know, there are so many times in this episode that I have gone, wait, what was that guy's name? And we've <laughs> looked it up. Now I'm going to cut that out so right, right, that right. you don't hear it over and over <laughs> again, but I actually can't, I'm really good at stories. Like, yeah, if, yeah, yeah. like I can tell, like I, I can, I can remember from episodes we did three years ago, the yeah. production story about how something happened, but I can't remember the names or the dates or like the, the, the trivia, the facts. I'm actually mm-hmm. not that good at it, right. you know? So I might look good on paper, but I wouldn't be good in the game, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. Let's go meet his ex-wife, Robin yeah. Wright. I think this scene is amazingly wonderfully awkward. Yeah, and I had no, I totally forgot she was in this movie. I yeah. knew Chris Pratt. I forgot Robin Wright was in this movie. Um, and, and I love that the house. He goes to this house that's obviously these people got a lot of money. Yeah, and meets the talks to the new husband, and you can see him really trying to be nice you know i haven't got to see you since the playoffs and i really wanted to say that new york was heartbreaking i think the new husband is scared of billy bean oh yeah of course he's intimidated because, by yeah. because he's a dick and mm-hmm. he's got a temper and he's difficult and yeah plus he's extremely good looking and that intimidates a lot of people steve and then we hear you know the daughter's not quite there but he called her on her cell phone and she's coming up the hill <laughs> she's got a cell phone yeah a 12 year old for emergencies big parenting decision <laughs> which is just such a, a dig <laughs> there's so much of billy that's about kind of dominance and oh yeah intimidation and yeah anger and 
By the way, I was thinking, I actually think this is one of Brad Pitt's best performances. A thousand percent. I think he was nominated for this or people want. Yeah. And so it is a fantastic performance. You're absolutely right. Because he makes you actually like or or care about a guy who's kind of a dick. So that's a really good job of that. Yeah. And well, and you can see what, what he's doing so well is frequently without doing that much, you see all the inner turmoil and anger and, and stress that he's under Mm -hmm. the very sweet scene with his daughter in a guitar store and he gets her to sing. It's lovely. Yeah. It's such a great song. Such a cute little song. It reminded me so much of the Juno song. Um, So it had like nice little vibe to it as well. Yeah. It, it, it's just great. It's it's lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're back in the flashback, and it's now it's eighty four. We're at a Mets game, <laughs> and it's his, and he's up to bat. And this is the a guy that never failed at anything. He could yeah. have gone to the NFL, and what does he do? He strikes out. Mm-hmm. And I love that as he's walking back to the dugout, the player he walks by is Daryl Strawberry. <laughs> right. There's not an organization in baseball who would not have taken a chance on this young guy. One of the things, and this is what Billy B, the real Billy Bean said, is that the biggest key for him was he didn't want to hire himself. Yeah. The player that looked good, but maybe wasn't that good. I will say this. Um, the casting of the young Billy Bean. Amazing. When I, right. But a part of me was like, but this guy is not as good looking as Brad Pitt. And so I think that's an element of this. And I'm not judging the eye. Like if you, by some random chance, if he's listening to this episode, not judging, <laughs> I'm not judging your looks. Very I, attractive man. Yeah, it's quite, but I'm just saying it doesn't have that same energy. Like if we're to believe the stuff of believe what Billy Bean was, was and how he looked and all of that, I was surprised they chose this. And initially I was going to be like, this is bad casting. But then as I thought about it more in my mind, I'm like, no, this is actually smart casting because this kid is sympathetic. Yeah. This kid is struggling. This kid has had the potential, made a decision. It's not working out for him. How many of us have universally experienced this where we make a decision in our lives? And then as it's going forward, like, ah, damn it, this is not working out the way I thought it was going to, how frustrating that is, how angry you might get, uh, and especially when it's in public view, like the Major League Baseball is. And so that how that might affect you. So choosing a kid like this, it makes you more sympathetic for the Brad Pitt version of Billy Bean as we go back to the uh, uh, modern um, uh, scenes that we're, going to, that we're going to see in the movie. So very smart casting in the end is, is what I thought. I think that's 100% true. Billy, that is Kevin Euclid. That is the Greek god of walks. Kevin Euclid, one of my favorite players. And then he gets called in the hall to talk to Grady. It's a very well-directed scene. And I'll tell you why. Because I watch it, you know, from an actor's point of view. Grady says, hey, do you have a minute? Yeah, sure. And you can tell Brad Pitt or Brad Billy Bean is caught up in whatever he's looking on screen because he's just been ignoring Peter. Peter's been talking about this, but he's just been kind of, he even asks him, are you okay? What's wrong? He doesn't respond to him. He's lost in his own thoughts about the situation and probably even questioning whether he's doing the right thing. Listen, don't be fooled by the movies. When people make bold decisions, they are, there are numerous moments as human beings where they're alone at 3 a.m. And they're like, 
Is this all going to blow up in my face? No matter what they show you outwardly, most people who are revolutionizing something, or as John, the character playing John Henry says later on in the movie, most people, the first person through the wall is always the bloodiest. And right. so there's a lot of questions through that process. And I think in that moment, he's caught up in that, right? So here's Grady coming in to kind of rattle him out of that moment to talk to him. And Brad Pitt does such an incredible thing because the character plays great. I don't know if this is on purpose and I don't know if they talked about it. I had, you know, directors sometimes will give actors different direction in a scene to see how they play off of each other and not tell the other actor what the other actor is going to do. So uh Brad Pitt, when Grady walks out, he does what you would think. He says, can I talk to you for a minute? Grady walks him away from Peter, walks away from Peter and wants to go to a separate area. Sake of private conversation. And that's natural. But sure. Brett, Billy Bean, when he steps out, Brad Pitt, he steps for a second, sees that Grady is going to dictate where they talk. And he gets this look over his face like, ah, cocky son of a bitch. And he walks for. So it is already like that's his mindset going into this conversation that Grady is trying to, in essence, strong harm him and disrespect him as an older man to a younger man. So that's all playing. And Brad Pitt does such an excellent job of showing that in the face before he moves, right? Then they have this interaction. And in this interaction, which ends with Grady physically touching him in a yeah. way that is kind of shocking in the moment, this actor goes toe-to-toe with Brad Pitt, and it is fantastic. And he symbolizes the general division here. It is right. not 100% correct. It's the general division here that the jocks versus the nerds. It's this is this is revenge of the nerds all over again, Steve. It's the jocks who say, "Hey, you know, you tell Google boy, they're going to make fun of you cuz you you you're, you're disrespecting the foundation of baseball." And him saying like anybody could do it as if anybody can do science is is phenomenally nuts, you know? And so uh, all of he's approaching it from a more of a Neanderthal point of view. And you sympathize with Grady, of course, because Grady is also trying to tell him like, hey, why don't you have a little bit of fucking care about how you're doing this and how it's going to look for the organization as well, not just you. Billy, you got a kid in there that's got a degree in economics from Yale. You got a scout here with 29 years of baseball experience. Yeah, you're yeah. listening to the wrong one. You're discounting what scouts have done for 150 years, even yourself. Adapt or die. But the truth is, there's a there were a lot of great players on the roster already before he started doing this. This only kind of supplemented what was already there. So it wasn't full sabermetrics up and down the roster. Uh, so, but they had to lay out the the general division here so you can turn Billy Bean into the protagonist of this story, in essence, the hero of the story as well. So it's an essential scene to the movie. I, it's, you said so much there that I, I want to comment on. And, and, mm. and the, the first thing is, is that I don't think these are black and white issues. You nope. know, like, Not I think there are times where you see someone, something special in a player that needs mm-hmm. to be developed. And if they are paired with the right coach in the right circumstances, yeah. that they'll blossom. Maybe there was a way for Billy Bean to blossom, you know? Mm-hmm. That we just didn't get. I also think Billy Bean, as we said many times, in his characterization in this film, is such a dick. And yes. he's such a bad leader because he starts from a position of you guys are useless. Mm-hmm. And even uh, not just that I think you're useless in a condescending way, but I am angry at your uselessness. Mm-hmm. And so that's not a person anybody wants to work for. He could have gone, hey, 
I know you guys have 150 years of experience together in this room. I know you, and we're going to try something different this year. And -hmm. I want to talk to you about it and explain the process and see if we can get all on the same team. He could have done that, but he doesn't do that. Um, and, and, and the most interesting moment at the end of the scene is he says, this is about you and your shit, isn't it? 20 years ago, some scout got it wrong. Whoa. Okay. Now you're going to declare war on the whole system. Which I think is 100% correct. There is a direct connection between him talking about being in the room, sitting at the kitchen table with Grady, and his own experience sitting at that kitchen table. Okay, okay. My turn. By the way, there's so many Brad Pitt gesture moments that are Mm -hmm. just only Brad Pitt does that kind of thing. You're so right, Steve. Yeah. You don't have a crystal ball. You can't look at a kid and predict his future any more than I can. I've sat at those kitchen tables with you and listened to you tell those parents, when I know, I know. And when it comes to your son, I know. And you don't. Steve, it's so reminiscent of the scene in in Seven when he's talking to Kevin Spacey. You're a fucking T-shirt. You're a fucking movie of the week. It's the back and forth. Of course, he's in the better position, but you can sense the Brad Pitt mannerisms and the speech patterns, right? So you're so right to point that out, man. And and Grady's like, look, no one's going to hire you after this. You got a kid and you're going to have to explain to your kid why you're working at Dick's Sporting Goods. As if that's the fall. I don't know any former GMs of baseball who are working at Dick's Sporting Goods. Like there's there's a number of ladders before or a number of steps before you fall to Dick's Sporting Goods. By the um, way, a respectable job but to anybody who works at Dick's Sporting Goods. A job is a job, you know. And then he says, but I'm, I'm not going to fire you, Grady. And Grady puts his hand on his shoulder. Oh, and knocks that hand off. Fuck you, Billy. Now I will. That's a great, great moment in the scene. Yeah, agreed. And then who does he walk by as Grady storming out? But <laughs> hard how. <laughs> um, by the way, Grady wasn't fired by Billy Bean. Nope. He stayed on for a couple of years and he appreciated sabermetrics. Yes. Yes, he yeah. did. He eventually appreciated any. I think he moved on to the twins after um, his time with the A's. Just you and me, Pete. We're all in. Before he goes to Peter, he goes to some random room, points to a guy who's playing on a video game, playing yeah. a video game. And he says, you ever done any scouting? He's like, I, I think a little bit on the side. You're my new head scout. And then walks back into the room with Peter. So a little bit of an irresponsible move by Billy Bean, I suppose. It's so disrespectful. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um. Well, the, it's, it's funny. So there's a uh, a story that Robert Rodriguez tells in his book, um, Rebel Without a Crew, mm-hmm. which is if you're an aspiring filmmaker and think about making independent films, this is required reading. Absolutely. And he, this is the story he tells. He's sitting with his mom and it's like Easter and his mom is making a ham for Easter. And she takes the ham and she cuts the two ends of the ham off and then puts it in the thing and puts it in the oven. And yeah. and Robert Rodriguez goes, mom, why, why do you do that? Why do you cut the ends off the ham? And she goes, I don't know. My mom always did it, so I do it. <laughs> and Robert Rodriguez's grandmother is still alive, so he goes to his grandmother and says, Grandma, why do you cut the ends off the ham when you put it in the oven? And she goes, I don't know. My mom always did it. And guess what? His great-grandmother is still alive. So he goes to his great-grandmother and says, great-grandmother, why do you cut the ends off the ham? And she says, well, when I had that small apartment, we the 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 pan we had was too small, so I always had to cut the ends off the ham to fit in it. And so this thing that everybody did, they did it for, but they did this thing, but didn't know the reason they were doing it. 
And that is Robert Rodriguez's metaphor for the film industry. And there's a lot of truth. It is a very yeah. wasteful industry and people do things just because that's the way you d we've always done it. Yeah. Rather than looking at, well, what am I really trying to do? And I think that's certainly true. But mm -hmm. I also think you need to understand the way that it was done before you change it. You can't just go the way everybody has done it forever is wrong. Mm -hmm. There might be reasons there you don't get yet, you know? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. those scouts do have a lot of experience. Yeah, exactly. And that has to be respected. You can, you can upset the apple car, but you also got to respect the people who've been there before to agree. Now, if they're, uh, if they're undermining you or, or going behind your back, then fuck that. But if they're willing to work with you, then you've got to make it work. And you've got to explain it to them so they can get on board. As you right. said, Steve, he got results, but he's a shit ass leader when it comes to the people that actually work for him. And the better route is obviously make that make it a more interactive thing where the people can feel ownership about what they are doing, you know? Well, and they had a good team under these guys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They got Jason Giambi. They found good players because for very little money that was able to put them in competition with the Yankees. Yeah. You know, so just treating them with total, they're not fools, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of how they're treated in the film. Yes. Spring training. <laughs> I so was thinking about Major League. Looking at the spring training roster, you've got to be kidding. It's so who are these guys? <laughs> yeah, right. And not playing well and bobble, <laughs> bobbling grounders, so dropping true. balls. So true. Scott Hatterberg is a yeah. really interesting guy in the book. Mm -hmm. What's interesting in the book, although he's really nervous about playing first base and really doesn't know how to do it at first, right. he is way more on board and way smarter. Like if you listen to his philosophy of hitting, which came from him first, yeah, and it yeah. melded really well with what the A's were doing, but he had he was really really thoughtful about hitting and mm -hmm. analysis. You you would actually love this part of the book, I'm sure, because the analysis of which pitch and what position in the strike zone and when to take the ball and all that stuff yeah. was fascinating. You know, Steve, I think and 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 I want to read this book. I think people who discount baseball or any sport really as a simple thing. You just hit the ball really disrespectful to the game because it takes such a talent to be able to do this and such a mind. And we want a default to like, Oh, jocks are dumb. You know, the, the, the stereotype of that, but the great players are phenomenally intelligent about the game. Basketball as well. You really see it in basketball because the cybermet sabermetrics in basketball now is phenomenal. I mean, they have a convention every year. They have a three-day convention where they talk about metrics in sports now. And I'd love to find my way to get into that because it is fascinating. And what Hatterberg is talking about is how a lot of these players had begun to approach the game at that time, you know, the analytics of it all and putting it onto paper and mental uh, uh, stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's phenomenal. So you're making me more excited to read the book. For no, sure. I think, I think you'd like it. I really do. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's a, it's a really enjoyable, well-written book, but art. Howe does not have a good feeling about Hatterberg. <laughs> it's day one of the first week. Can't judge this yet. I think we can judge it. I like him, but I can judge him. Which, again, I totally agree with. Yeah. This guy is a professional baseball manager. That yeah. is his job to look at players <laughs> and judge them, you know? Right, right. 
you know, like, it's like if I was having auditions for actors and someone said, you, you can't judge the actors. Like, no, yeah, I can. <laughs> that is, that's my job. Yeah. I might not always be right, but I, yeah, I can judge actors. <laughs> um, and many of them are not good. First base is the moon to him. It wasn't to Giambi. Giambi's the worst first baseman in all of baseball. Yeah, you're going <laughs> to compare to Giambi. What are we talking about okay. here? All right. By the way, this conflict really didn't exist. Yeah, it never happened, of course. Yeah. yeah. All, all of the sort of, I mean, yes, it took how some adjustment and he didn't always want to do what, but the idea that that they were just in total battle all the time, it's just not, yeah. that's not reality. Yeah. What do you think, Wash? The nice way to say it is uh, he lacks confidence. We'll give him some. <laughs> and so now while he's, when he manages to pick up a grounder, they go, picking machine. <laughs> <laughs> Like it's Little League. Like it's yeah. Little League all over again. That is that is not what was happening with Adam Bird. <laughs> uh, he did work a lot with Ron Washington on learning how to be a first baseman. Yeah, and you Ron know. Washington, for those of you who are baseball fans, you know he went on to manage the Texas Rangers to the World Series a few years wow. later. So, yeah, a great, great uh, a coach and manager for the, uh, for the uh, baseball, for Major League Baseball. It's opening day, April 1st, 2002. We see people walking over that bridge that I was talking about to the Coliseum. We hear Don't Stop Believing. And I love that David Justice goes to get a soda and they tell him it's a dollar. He's like, you got to pay for the sodas? Welcome to Oakland. <laughs> major league, right? Like you said. Totally um, major league. And of course, David Justice says that never happened. That never happened. It's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's a funny moment. It's, a, it's funny a funny moment, moment and really kind of reinforces the underdog approach to this team. So Jeremy Giambi, let's face it. I mean, they're, they're getting a deal with you. The Yankees are paying Jason a whole lot of money and you are coming here on a dime. How does that make you feel? I love all these interviews because mm -hmm. all the, we have the reporter in the locker room and it, she is the most aggressive, insulting, condescending reporter ever. I had a lot of respect. You got to succeed in this business. Sometimes you got to push some people around as a woman in to, to, to get a little respect in the locker room. So I appreciated her approach to it. She got to get her story. Well, here we are just minutes away from the season opener of 2002 for the Oakland A's. But don't leave us now. Opening day is upon us. Typical baseball opening. Mm -hmm. and Brad Pitt is there and then he goes over to Jonah Hill and says, I'm going in. Text me to play by play. What? Why? I don't watch the games. And this is true. He didn't yeah. watch the games. Isn't that crazy, Steve? He didn't yeah. watch the games yet. He was so into creating a winning team, but he had a superstition about watching the games. Um, I used to be like that. I, I had a year or two where I wouldn't watch any Redskins games. I would just hear about the score because I was convinced that I know there's a lot of you sports fans who are listening to us. You're convinced that you're either the good luck or the bad luck for the team that you love. And it it's so out there in the weirdness of the world. But you legitimately believe that if you wear a certain jersey, if you eat a certain meal, if you get a haircut that day or don't, if you have sex that night or the, or the morning of the game, like all these things factor into you as a fan and you go and go, I'm the reason they lost. I didn't do this thing that I thought that yeah. I should have done. And, and Billy Bean legitimately believes that he is a cooler uh, using a gambling term for his team. It's funny. I am. I am so not superstitious. I'm almost anti. I, I'm almost superstitiously not superstitious. <laughs> like I will walk under the ladder to make a point. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, Tempting fate. I appreciate it. Um, and yet I have those thoughts. Yeah. Like yeah, right. uh, I, didn't, I didn't believe enough. I didn't, you know, 
Yeah, that's the game. Well, and you feel it, particularly if you're at the game, you feel like I am a part of this thing. You know, that's the beauty of sports, man. Uh, Do you you, have you been to opening days? Have you been to a number of opening days ever in your life? I have. I believe it or not. I know this sounds crazy. My dad took me out of school every year for opening day at Candlestick to see the Shut Giants. the fuck up. Yeah. That's awesome. Much yeah. love to your dad for doing that. No, the, I, it's so fun. Well, the Giants were so important in my house. The Giants and the Cow Bears. The Giant game was always on the radio. Yeah. Always. Yeah. It wasn't. My dad didn't watch the games as much. Yeah. He was always listening to the game. And so I knew the 1970s Giants. I knew the whole lineup. I had my favorite <laughs> players. Uh, I believe my favorite player was Daryl Evans because oh. he hit a grand slam home run when I was at a game one time. I went to <laughs> lots of Giants games yeah. and it was really funny. So the, again, <laughs> a lot of digressions. So this, guess what folks, it's a two parter, <laughs> but my father-in-law Franklin was a huge Dodger fan. He was a Dodger fan when the Dodgers were in Brooklyn. Right. Wow. And so when I went up to the uh, Bay area, Karen and I, I think we were probably married at this point and the Dodgers are playing the giants. And at this point I had stopped paying attention to baseball. I didn't pay attention at all. So where I knew the teams in the seventies in the early eighties yeah. by the late nineties, or early two thousands, but this is probably late nineties because it was a candlestick. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really care. So I said, I'm with some Dodger fans. You know what? I'm going to be, I'll just be a Dodger fan today. Yeah. You know, because I don't, you know, I'll, it doesn't matter. It does, this stuff doesn't matter to me. We get to Candlestick and we're walking through the tunnel. And you know how when you walk through the tunnel out into the stadium and it mm-hmm. just kind of opens up in front yeah. of you yeah. and you're in this. I always have an emotional feeling just from the space. Yeah, that's on purpose. And I walk into Candlestick where I hadn't been probably in a decade. And I thought of my dad and I went, nope, Giants <laughs> fan. I'm a Giants fan. I can't. Uh-huh. Yeah, I couldn't root against the Giants. Right, right. Like it was so emotional and really obviously related to my father and like mm-hmm. that, you know, cause baseball and dads, man, that's, yeah. for, you know, just like you and soccer yep. with your dad, bad, like man. this is emotional stuff. And I was like, no, I'm a Giants fan. And I even went to opening day at Pac Bell park on in 2001. So the year mm-hmm. before, I don't remember who they were playing then. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been to lots of opening days. I, I didn't experience till it, till I moved here to Los Angeles. Well, I'm in San Diego now, but I was in Los Angeles I didn't experience the opening day till I moved there. And then I used to go with my friend, my old friend, Edgar. We'd go opening days. We'd buy 25 game packages at the beginning of the year because uh, we were living together at the time and then, you know, stayed friends for a little while after that. And and we would go and go to opening days. And there was something, there's always a magic at opening day. There's a hopeful, the possibility of it all. The mayor is there, you know, right. uh, other people, celebrities show up. It's a great feeling. It's an awesome experience for sure. Um, and yeah, you're right. Like me and my dad experienced it when DC United became a soccer team in the nineties and through the MLS and, and through their glory years in the early years of that going to the opening day of the season and soccer was great smelling the grass and the excitement all around. And, you know, even more so with soccer because it's such a niche thing in America at the time that like everybody around you who's there, they are all your people because oh, yeah. we are the ones fighting for this thing to be successful by showing up, by patronizing it. We're saying it deserves to exist in this country. It should be successful in this country as a sport. Uh, but nothing, nothing, and not even the NFL. I've been to an opening day in the NFL as well. There's nothing that matches opening day in baseball. Nothing. It's just, you're right, Steve. The way it's set up, the way you walk out, the stadiums are built so that when you walk in, you just kind of 
blown away by the joy of looking at it and the smell of the grass, the joy, the hopefulness, and the way the the sun glistens. If you've got an opening day that's it's sunny, it's just unforgettable memories for sure. And it's funny too how different teams have different cultures and their fans mm, have different yeah. cultures. Good point. Like growing up, because I grew up as a Giants fan, when you went over to the A's, the A's, the whole world of the A's is different. Yeah. The Coliseum and the A's was different from the Candlestick and the Giants. Sure, I'm and sure. Man, and the other two teams was the difference between the 49ers and the Raiders. <laughs> you know, these are <laughs> oh, totally I'm sure. different people. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, it, well, and you think about the uh, culture of the Mets or the culture of the Yankees or, yeah. the, or the Cubs. Like all of these teams, they have history and, yeah. you know. And it's also why I do understand the fans are going to hate you. Oh yeah. I, I'm, I mean, there were years, I remember there were years in Oakland where there was like, you know, 250 people went to an A's game, mm-hmm. you know? Right. I don't know if it was that small, but they had real, real problems some of the time. Yeah. So <laughs> Billy heads off to the locker room. There's a beautiful shot of national anthem and that flag opening up. It looks absolutely gorgeous. Peter brand is in the computer room watching and he's got to be freaking out at this moment. Oh yeah. I mean, he doesn't have Billy Bean's confidence, arrogance, intensity. Yeah. He's just a kid, man. Yeah. <laughs> and Billy will like snap on the radio for a second and then snap it <laughs> off. By the way, I don't think it's just that he thinks he's a cooler, although I think he does. Mm-hmm. I think he emotionally can't handle it. Oh, that's that's uh, 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 fair as well. Absolutely yeah. fair as well. It's so funny. There are some people I know who can't watch sports because mm. they get too emotionally involved. Yeah. You know, yeah. like they just can't handle Understood. it. Understood. And, and he's getting texts from Peter saying that Art Howe is not playing the team that he wanted him to. Yeah. He's got Pena at first. He doesn't send Chad Bradford out for the relief pitcher. Right. And that means all of this is for nothing. And now we have a meeting with Art Howe. And it's really the only time that Billy shows any sense that maybe he didn't handle this right. I should have made you a bigger part of the conversation from day one. That way it'd be clear what we're trying to do here. That was my mistake. But then he says, it doesn't matter what moves I make if you don't play the team the way they are designed to be played. Billy, you're out of your depth. You're out of your depth, man. You're out of your depth. Donnie, you're out of your depth. You're out of your depth, Donnie. <laughs> I would have rather seen Bradford in the end than McNaughty. Bradford's a righty. I don't care about righty-lefty. I do. Well, and it's funny because I, I don't – you would know the statistics better for me. My understanding is that is a real statistic. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you want to line up uh, uh, the batters against certain pitchers at the counter of the right to the left. Yeah, absolutely. Could this be about your contract? No. This is about you doing your job and me doing mine. Philip Seymour Hoffman's so good in this scene. Oh, yeah. I didn't assemble him for you, Art. No shit. <laughs> Which I think is a great shot. That's a great <laughs> shot. Um, well, and, and Billy just can't resist being a dick at the end. Good meeting. Every time we talk, I'm reinvigorated by my love of the game. <laughs> and then again, it's full Brad Pitt, that silly walk away. <laughs> I love the the monster thing he does as he's walking away too. It's like a little. It's so weird. It's totally it's like, weird. He's like, if I can punch you, I really would, but I can't punch you. So yeah. All right, we got Grady Fuse on the line, former head of scouting with the Oakland Athletics. And Grady, can you interpret for us what's going on? They call it Moneyball. Moneyball. Yes, and it was a nice theory, and now it's just not working out. They didn't call it Moneyball. 
Moneyball is a name invented by Michael Lewis, who wrote the mm-hmm. book. They never called it that. Billy Bean has built this team on the ideas of a guy named Bill James. Right. The problem is that Bill James never played, never managed. He was, in fact, a security guard at a pork and beans company. By the way, I didn't look up to see if he actually had that job. He did. He did. He, did. he was he was overnight security guard, which oh. is how he is able to write this stuff in his 20s. Uh, he was an overnight security guard for a number of years. He started writing this stuff in his twenty when he was in his twenties. So it was only over years and years of writing this stuff that he eventually got some kind of attention for. But yeah, that's when he first started writing. He was sit overnight and he said, as a security guard, they didn't bother me. They left me alone. It was an abandoned factory. I just had to sit there, so I had to fill my time. And I loved baseball, so I thought of a new way into the game. You know, so incredibly intelligent guy, man. You see this as a decimation of the whole organization. I think that he bought a ticket on the Titanic. Oh, boy. And I think as the A's are starting to sink into the ocean of the American League West, this is as good a time of any to end part one of our exploration of Moneyball. As always, we want to hear your thoughts on the film. Please visit uh, visit us on our Facebook page. Do a search for The Cinephiles. You can follow The Cinephiles at Cine underscore files on Twitter. The Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on YouTube. Leave your comments on YouTube. Reviews on Apple Podcasts, they still matter. If you haven't reviewed the show yet, even if you listen to the show on Spotify or somewhere else, make your way to the Apple page and leave us a review. It really, really helps. The other thing that helps is support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where you can pick a film that we're going to do. You can ask questions about some of our upcoming movies, get advanced information on our upcoming films. And of course, listen to our cinephile shorts, which we try to do every week. And if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how about you? You can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. See all the things I'm doing there and then head on over to my YouTube page, youtube.com slash John Roca says, see all the great content we got over there. Geek buddies, uh, reviews, trailer reactions, sports stuff, politics stuff. Steve's been on a number of channels on Impolite Truth. So go and head on over there too as well and enjoy content there. And I think that's it for this week. We will see you next time for part two of Moneyball on the cinephiles. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.